Uh, today I'd like to talk about the gift of the precepts or ethics as giving or the ethical life as a gift. So we're in the midst of our autumn practice period called Ango. Our theme for this Ango, so all of Zen Community of Oregon is participating both here and at Heart of Wisdom, Zen Temple in Portland, and also for folks who are part of our online Sangha. So the paramitas are the perfections. Paramita means perfection. And these are qualities, uh, qualities and activity of awakened beings that can be cultivated and revealed. So cultivated in that we can actually uh, encourage these aspects of ourselves. And revealed in that they become more and more apparent the more we get out of the way. So the first one in the traditional list is generosity. Uh, that can be cultivated through just giving, for example. Time, our time, our talents, our money, our attention. So those are some actions. And it is revealed when we're less self-conscious and self-concerned. Um, our inherent generosity comes through. So we consider others, for example. And then our giving comes from this place of considering others, as opposed to, this is a should, I need to do. So we had this, um, we had a mindfulness practice here at the monastery of leave no trace. Or sometimes that's, you know, leave the space better than you found it. So if you're a hiker or a camper, you know this, leave no trace. Uh, when you go camping, leave the campsite. Or leave only footprints. It's one of my favorites. So this leave no trace um, is pretty important when you're living with 30 other people sharing a space together. Um, so it's interesting to take up this practice um, of leave no trace or leave the space better, kind of however you phrase it. So I found for myself that if this practice of being more mindful in this way is kind of a should, like, well, I should do this, or I should do the practice, or I should leave this better than I found it, the, the practice was kind of like, meh. And in a way, I would almost like forget to do it sometimes. Um, but when, when we think about leaving the space better than we found it for the next person, if you consider the next person, it was much more interesting and much more um, alive. So for example, um, straightening out the couch cushions. And I would just imagine like, oh, how inviting this space will be for the, the person who comes in, they have the couch cushions, it like almost looks like an Ikea, right? It's just like perfect, right? So, or uh, wiping down the coffee area and tea area, you see coffee or, you know, I, you know, if you dribble like some half and half, it's like clean that up and this like place is totally wonderful and inviting for the next person. It's just more alive. 
So it's much more happy to do it in this way. So that's in the sort of getting out of the way. When I'm taking up the practices, I should do that, there's a bunch of small self involved. And that's not, you know, it's, that's where the meh was from. It's like, well, do I really feel like working on this aspect of myself? I don't know, maybe later, maybe tomorrow, maybe when I have more time. I have important things to do. I don't have time for this. But when it's for others, it was more live. So you might look at that for yourself as you do that kind of practice. So the second of the perfections in the traditional list after generosity is sila, or in po- sila, um, which is the Pali word, or at, often translated as ethics. Um, it's three parts of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha talked about in the Four Noble Truths. The first is that everyone has difficulties. The second is that it comes, it happen, we often cause our own difficulties through our clinging and aversion. The third is there's a way out, and the fourth is there's a path, and part of the path is, is um, our conduct and being ethical. And that's often right action, right speech, and right livelihood. So for this uh, ethics, we often refer to it around here in the community as the precepts. And if you want to boil down what we do here to the essence, it is awakening. And this is realized through zazen meditation and the precepts. That's fundamentally it. Awakening with the precepts and zazen. That's it. I'm filling in for Hogan, so I feel it is my obligation to make such a bold and sweeping statement. (laughs) Say this is what we're doing. It's fundamentally this. So I'll take your comments over lunch about how I did. Um, So we have Zazen all the time. We offer it. All of you you did it today. Um, We do it constantly here, a lot more during Ango. Um, But I think all of us have come to the practice uh, for Zazen to learn to meditate, be more mindful. Um, And it turns out our precept classes are also extremely popular. People seem hungry for for a precept study. Um, I I looked back over the past year. Over the past year, over 100 people have participated in classes. Um, And there's a class going on, uh, an online class happening. There's 29 people in it. And then there's a class here at the monastery, um, which will happen after lunch. So there's something that people are really looking for, not just how do I calm down through, through mindfulness? Um, but really questioning about how do we live a good life? So how we do it here, for those who are interested, is we kind of do it in two stages. Um, if you want to do formal study, a lot of people participate in the classes multiple times. Um, and they don't you know, take up precept class preset practice in a formal way, but we do have ways to do that. So typically people will do the, will take up the practice of the five precepts, vows not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to misuse sexuality, and not to become intoxicated. 
People saw Wagesa, which is that strip. Austin is modeling quite well. Wagesa. So that's sewn. And then we do a ceremony. And we'll actually be doing one um, later this month, I think. So you'll be able to see what that's like. Precepts, five precepts. And I'll talk a little bit more about those precepts later. And then later are the 16 Bodhisattva precepts where you formally become a Zen Buddhist. Uh, those include five additional precepts. Um, the, include the five plus additional ones around speech, gossip, avoiding gossip and criticism, around unleashing anger, being generous. Then you sow a rakasu, which is, um, which uh, Genjo here is modeling, and Myoyu. It's the, um, it looks like a bib, but it's a miniature version of the Buddha's robe. And you receive a Dharma name. And a lot of us go by our Dharma name who have done that. So this is all around the precepts. So this is all optional, of course. Uh, no one will make you do this. Um, it's an open-handed invitation. And many people just do the precept classes. That's part of their own journey, their own investigation, and that's fine. So the precepts, in a way, are a step into maturity. That indulging in what we want ultimately doesn't make us happy and isn't ultimately satisfying. This isn't about adopting a list of shoulds or don'ts or thou shalt not, which is basically an external approach, a self-improvement approach. Now, if we took up that practice and we just took it up as thou shalt nots, we would probably, things would, <laughs> things, our life would probably go better. Um, but it's deeper than that. Just in the way that this mindfulness practices of, oh, I should do this, um, is only on the surface and doesn't go deep. In the same way, our practice of the precepts is one of how do we, how do we investigate deeper? We're invited to a more intimate relationship than simply taking on a bunch of rules for ourselves. So, the, so I'll just talk a little bit about the five precepts as a way to open this up. It's always good to be reminded of, of, of this. So the five precepts, um, the first one is in Pali, Pana, uh, Panatipata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. The second one is Anidadana Veramani Sika, Sika Padam Samadhiyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. The third is Kamesu Michakara Veramani Sika Padam Samadhiyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Number four is Musavada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami. I vow, I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. And then the final one is Suramera Ya Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhiyami. I undertake the precept 
to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. So Chosen Roshi has often said that if the world just lived by these five precepts alone, the world would be transformed. If people lived by the precepts of, I vow not to kill, but to cherish all life. I vow not to steal, but to respect the things of others. I vow not to misuse sexuality, but to be respectful in mind and action. I vow not to lie, but to speak the truth. I vow not to misuse drugs or alcohol, but to keep the mind clear. Yeah, if the world just lived by these five precepts alone, the world would be transformed, wouldn't it? Just looking around at what's going on and what's always gone on. So, but we can take that up as an invitation because if we just live by these five precepts alone, our world would be transformed and is transformed if we take this up and allow it to go deep. So I want to look at sort of different dimensions of the precepts. So I don't think that they're quite levels. I think that these are dimensions, facets of the jewel of the precepts. So one of these is precepts as should and should not. And as I said, it works (laughs) to view them in that way. Um, so this is from Diane Rosetto. Uh, her book is really wonderful. It's called Waking Up to What You Do, which in a way is another way to think about the precepts. Waking up to what we do. She says, unlike commandments or rules by which we judge ourselves, The precepts prod us to wake up and see clearly the reality of each and every situation and to take appropriate action accordingly. The precepts can also be described as keys that if you skillfully can help us unlock the closets we don't want to open, closets that hold what we don't want to face, and closets that hold our deepest potential. They can point us to exploring the moment when things aren't the way we want them to be. They are aspirations that help us take appropriate action. So in a way, it's, you know, that's a way of looking beyond our self-centered view of what I want to do or what I can get away with. It's interesting to see how we might strategize around, um, for example, speaking the truth or not speaking the truth. and when it's, or, um, you know, when it's okay to, like, you know, it's okay to just, um, like, I wouldn't steal a candy bar or steal from, but is it okay for me to, like, you know, if Fred Meyer undercharges me, you know, they're this really big corporation. What do they need this uh, $6.99 for, right? Um, you know, it's our self-centered view that that's, a, to, that, that that's okay. And what does that, what is the effect of that? We sort of strategize about who's deserving of our, um, 
upholding the precepts and who, yeah, it's, it's fine, it's okay. So the should, should not allows us to see beyond our self-centered view um, of just doing what we want in order to get what we want. And, you know, in a way we're all, you know, we're all fine, upstanding, ethical people. I think I know almost all of you. Um, so, um, but we're asked to go, we're asked to go deeper and see how our impulses around, uh, around self-centered view um, affect our relationship to the precepts. So one, th- one aspect, too, around the precepts and the way that we phrase them around here is both in their positive and negative aspects. So when I read them in the Pali, it was about refraining from doing things. So don't destroy living creatures. Don't take which it, what isn't given. Uh, don't lie. But in our telling of them, the way that we take up the practice is I vow not to lie, but I also vow to speak the truth. I vow not to steal, but I vow to respect the things of others. So that could go along around here. You know, the things that don't belong to me, how do I regard them? Do I treat them with reverence? Everything here was given, donated, everything. So do I regard these things as um, precious because they were donated from the giving heart of someone who believes in the monastery? You know, the food that is prepared for us is it's people just giving, giving their life energy to nourish us, and then it just shows up in our role. So there's the positive aspects too. The other part of practicing with the precepts is around complexity. Things are not just yes or no. This was captured in a famous Zen story. So you're sitting in a forest when you see a rabbit run by. A moment later, a hunter comes up to you and asks if you've seen a rabbit. If you answer yes, you will indirectly contribute to the death of the rabbit. If you say no, I didn't see a rabbit, you break the precept not to lie. So what do you do? Do you lie and protect the rabbit? Or do you say yes? You don't lie, and then the rabbit dies, or one of the deer around here. So what if you see that the hunter is followed by three starving children? Then what? This hunter is chasing the deer in order to feed his children. Then what? It's not so simple, is it? 
And so that's, this is what we do in precept pra practice is that we, we acknowledge the complexity of things. And that's where our Zazen comes in as a complement is that the more clear seeing that we are, the more that we respond as skillfully as we can. And this also acknowledges that the world is infinitely complex. I mean, just this little story, infinitely complex. And what do we do? So another aspect is precepts as the North Star. Some people have um, avoid taking the precepts or really don't want to because they don't think that they can live up to it. This is a very common um, uh, response. So if you have that feeling, you're part of the club. Um, and that's one of the reasons why that it's important to remember that the precepts are a practice. Just like you say, I vow to take up the practice of Zazen. You at least did that enough to get here and sit. In the same way, one of the ways that uh, the precepts can be phrased is I vow to undertake the practice of, or I undertake the practice. I think in that, um, yeah, in that translation from the Pali, it's I undertake the practice of, I take up the practice of, I take up the practice of um, not killing, but respecting life, cherishing life. I take up the practice of speaking the truth and not lying. So we can also flip them and come with the positive first. It's important not to get tripped up on the words, but to take in the spirit. And the other way that we do it here is we talk about vow. This monastery is great vow. And a vow is something that's um, an aspiration. It's not, I've arrived. Like now that, I'm, now that I'm good enough, I can say I can do this and be successful. It's, it's basically saying the world has such difficulties and I have such difficulties. How do I want to live? How do you want to be in the world? That's what the precepts are. That's what precept practice says. How do you want to be in the world? And so you take up the practice. So another aspect is the precepts as giving, that the precepts themselves are a gift that you give. This is from the uh, Abhisanda Sutta, from the uh, Angudra Nikaya. The Abhisanda Sutta, Sutta, the Buddha says, there are these five gifts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and are unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. Which five? Which five gifts? So, just to give you the, the spirit and the, the cadence of, of the original teachings, the early teachings. So which five? There is the case where a disciple of the noble ones, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life. In doing so, they give freedom from danger. They give freedom from animosity. 
They give freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, they gain a share in limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning. That is not that is not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and is unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and Brahmins. And then the Buddha goes on and says, each of these five precepts is a gift of freedom for others. Freedom from it makes the world safer for people. It's it creates less animosity in the world. It creates less oppression in the world. If we live by this, if we live by uh, uh, not lying, then there's more truthfulness in the world. And it says that we benefit from these gifts. Other beings and ourselves are included in this. So reading this sutta, I hadn't quite considered uh, before how the precepts are themselves a generous act to actually live by them is giving, which is some aspect in the in the paramitas is that they're all mutually reinforcing to each other. And so in this way, the precepts are reinforcing of, of generosity. And then of course, when we're more generous and less self-centered and come from more of a place of giving, then it becomes easier to give the precepts. It's not, um, it doesn't feel restraining in, in a way. So another aspect of precept study is precepts as koan. So koans are the uh, are uh, Zen <laughs> Zen technology. Um, you and know, Zen, we have stories of interactions between practitioners, sometimes teachers and students, sometimes between two students, um, and. Fundamentally, what koans do are honor the questions, the deep questions that we have. And so we can take up the, the question of, so what is killing? What is lying? What is speaking the truth? What is becoming intoxicated? And then when we have those questions, we can investigate different levels of those or different facets. So there's one thing about killing creatures. Okay, I don't kill spiders. I let them out. Um, I may say, well, part of my practice of this is I'm a vegan or I'm a vegetarian. Um, but what about killing someone's motivation? What about killing someone's spirit? There's many ways to kill. There's many ways to bring to life. Encouraging people, that's a way of, that brings people to life. What about objectifying people? That's a kind of killing. We make people into an object. We view someone as an object for my own satisfaction. And that's not just sexual objectification. I need you to be this certain way and so I can be happy. I need you to be this way so I can feel safe. That's a kind of objectification too.
Now, this isn't a way to figure out all the ways that we're doing it wrong. This is an investigation for how the mind is working. Zen is about turning the light, shining it within, and look at the mind. And so we see these ways, and then we can we create space, and space creates choice, and cre- creates wisdom and compassion. So looking at the so these these precepts aren't about just uh, looking at on this sort of in that surface level, but what are the different? What is what is it? What is what is that? What is intoxication? There's the intoxication of social media. We can be intoxicated by our own opinions and our own rightness. <laughs> It can be, my view is this. I don't want to listen to your opinion or view. Um, one thing that occurred to me in writing this talk is that there's a way in which this, the um, refraining from speaking the truth, the inner critic is part of that. There's a kind of lying that happens with what the inner critic says. Oh, you'll never get this. You're not really meditating. Is that true? Often what, you know, the inner critic, what the inner critic says is not true. So that's a kind of internal, it's like, oh. So supporting that kind of self-talk for myself, like indulging in that habit of self-criticism and self-judgment, in a way it's like, oh, it's not true. I'm actually telling myself something that isn't true. I'm lying to myself. So what would it mean to speak the truth? It's much more complex what's going on. So in some traditions, in the koan study tradition, so you start off on your, on your um, bodhisattva journey, you take your five precepts, you get your wagesa, you take up the 16 precepts in a ceremony. That often happens, not always, but people often do that towards the beginning of their practice. Although I know someone who did, took Jukai 20 years into his practice, so there's no... You don't have to do it a certain way. But in some traditions of koan practice, you do hundreds of koans. Hundreds of koans. Um, The Blue Cliff Record and the Gateless Gate and Entangling Vines, these big koan collections. Um, This is particularly in the Rinzai tradition. And then the very last koans are about the precepts. Those are the like... You've, you've gone through all these koans, and then you, do the, then you do the precepts again. Those are the final koans. So this taking up of the koans as a, the, of precept practice as a koans and really investigating it is very important practice. So then there's the precepts as awakened life. That this is the way, actually taking up the precepts is taking our seat as Buddhas. It's manifesting our Buddha nature. This is how awakened beings live. So in, uh, in the Mahayana teaching, Mahayana Buddhism, of which Zen is a part, um, there's often referred to as the, tr- the two truths which is a relative truth, conventional truth, and then ultimate or absolute. 
So a lot of what, when we talk about um, the precepts and what I've been talking about so far is a lot of it is around the conventional truth. Although the koans start to get into something that's uh, into the uh, paramatha satya, the ultimate truth. So the conventional truth, extremely important. It's the horizontal, you can think of it as the horizontal aspect, the way we relate to each other and to ourselves. And then there's the, the uh, ultimate, which is, you can think of it as the vertical aspect. Non-conceptual. Like when we talked about the, the uh, Diamond Sutra, non-conceptual, not separate, non-dual. So this is often a place where you may aspire to dwell. I like to go to the place where there is no um, um, in a place that is not a place. Or um, you know, or coming to practice like you know, I don't need these rules. I want to go to the place where I don't need rules. Just abide in boundless space. I want to abide in great spacious emptiness. So I can do that and I'll bypass all this and then I'll just live from this place. Um, This was inspired by talking to a practitioner who about this, but I won't, which I thought was very interesting. And so if this, um, oh, wrong book. So there is the ultimate aspect, the all, it's all one aspect or truth. But these really are, um, so Reb Anderson in his book, excellent book on the precepts called Being Upright, uh, quotes one of our ancestors, Nagarjuna, who talks about the interplay between the relative and the absolute, between conventional truth and ultimate truth. And Nagarjuna, both are fundamental. So Reb Anderson quoting Nagarjuna says, without a foundation in the conventional truth, without a foundation in the horizontal conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate cannot be taught. Without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. Without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. So both of these aspects, both of these orienting to these different um, truths is awakening. So what does this mean? Well, I'll let you know when I'm awakened. No, um, so one way to look at, an element to look at this is um, 
you know, again, po pointed to the koan things, but um, in terms of the precept of stealing, we can look at this as, like, do we really own anything? Do we really need to take anything? All things are animate and inanimate have their own awakened nature, their own intrinsic awakened nature. We don't need to own them. So the lying, so so the the stealing or obtaining things. Um, one, we see that that there's no way to own anything. If you lose pens like me, you know there's no way to own anything. You never own a pen; it's always just flowing through your hands. <laughs> when we see everything coming towards us as a gift, we don't need to take anything. So we come from the places we don't take anything because we know there's nothing to take. We don't want to own anything. We don't want to obtain anything. We don't need to be filled by, fulfilled by things being a certain way. Everything just as it is. Life and death, so in the precept of killing, life and death as not separate, but constant flow of liveliness. Things come into awareness, into our awareness. They're beautiful. They are full of wonder. And then they change. We don't need to keep them. We love them, and then we love what comes next. People come into our life, we love them, they change, they disappear. We love who comes next. And this is, and the, one of the tricky things is seeing ourselves as just that too. That we're not separate from this arising, being lovely and love, loving wondrous and then changing into something different moment after moment time after time nothing but this so i hope you um, consider taking up the precepts as a practice if you haven't i hope those of you who have taken up the precepts receive the bodhisattva precepts, continue your precept practice, continue to look in a courageous and loving way at your own life, how, how you do what you do. The world needs us to wake up to what we do. Thank you.